sure you don't want to talk a little longer? I was having a good time sitting right there. You know, um, one of the questions that we get a lot in this whole system that we've been talking about is what curriculum do we use in our small groups? Had anybody in here actually thought about that? Okay. Before I, I dive into that, you don't have to agree with me, but let's just review some of the things that I've, I've said just to make sure that I don't have to go all the way back through that starting right now till tomorrow morning. Why does the church exist? To make disciples. Okay? According to our definition of what a disciple is at real life, what verse do we use to define discipleship? Matthew 4.19. What is the What is the verse? Come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. How many of you didn't say it out loud, but you knew that, what I just said, those two things I just said? Raise your hand if you knew it. Okay, some of you are new, the rest of you were not listening, obviously. Why is it important that you have, if, if, if discipleship is important, and that's what we're about as a church, why is it important to have a common definition for the team? Or is it important to have a common definition for the team? Have, how many of you have thought about, wow, do we have a common definition at our church? How many of you have actually thought about that? How many of them you know that you do not have a common definition at your church? That's it? That's all the hands I get? How many? Raise your hand if, if you know you do not. All right. How many of you see that as a potential problem? Okay. All right, so already you, you, you realize something like, wow, that's, that's probably true. And I did get something from this. All right. Um, how are disciples made? Jesus said, come and follow me, I will make you fishers of men. What word there do we focus in on that gives us some methodology as to how Jesus made disciples? Follow me. Come and follow me. Come on, come with me. Did Jesus... Uh, I want you to imagine for a minute that uh, Jesus, you were there and you were one of the fishermen and Jesus said throw the net out and all these fish come pouring in. What did Jesus say to do right after that? He said, come on, leave it. What did they do? They left it. You know, from the human perspective, they're thinking, dude, if this guy joins our fishing company, we're going to be rich. Right? Right? Jesus didn't do the miracle of the fish to make them rich. He said, leave it. He did the miracle of the fish to show them who he was. Right? And then he said, now that's who I am. Now leave it. A disciple is one who is following Christ, being changed by Christ, committed to the mission of Christ. All right? We've been talking about... The, the SCMD process. Who in here can remind me of what S stands for? Share. What does C stand for? What does M stand for? Minister. What does D stand for? Disciple. Share, connect, 
Train for Ministry, Release to Disciple, SCMD. There are five stages of spiritual growth. What's the first stage of spiritual growth? What, how does everybody start? Dead. Dead or characterized by, by what word? What word characterizes the dead? Unbelief. Give me a phrase that a spiritually dead person says. There is no God. I don't believe. I don't think the Bible's true. All right. You become born again. Holy Spirit moves in. How do you start? As an infant. What is an infant characterized by? Ignorance. You become a child as you grow. What is a child characterized as? What word? I. Selfishness. Self-centeredness. You grow up and you become a young adult. What words characterize young adulthood? Service, zeal, ministry. They care about others and they care about God. Then you become a parent. A parent is characterized by what? Reproduction. Say it again. Intentionality. All right. Now we've been through this in a two-day seminar. Right? Did most of you who've been here during that time catch that? All that stuff that I just said. Now, how many times do you think I'm going to need to say that in a church? We did that in one seminar. How many times do you think I'm going to need to say that over the years before people own it? They're going to have to own it. They're going to have to talk, hear about it all the time. It's going to have to be a part of every sermon in one way or another. It's going to have to be, um, uh, you know, it's going to have to be a part of what we teach in our 101 classes and our 301 classes over and over and over and over again. What is the best way to reach a community? Christianity is supposed to be viral, isn't it? Caught from person to person to person. It's not build it and they will come. It's let's train them, equip them, release them, and our people will go. Go into the world and make disciples, baptizing and teaching. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All right, now having said all of that, um, the question we, we get is what curriculum do you use? And over the years, we've used several different kinds of curriculum. I, I want to tell you about the kind of curriculum we, do, we use now and why we use it now. But once again, we are not an orality church. So I want you to understand we're not a storytelling church. We are a relational discipleship church. That happens in small groups. Relationship happens in small groups. All right? So I want you to understand, um, I was just at the ION Conference, International Orality uh, Network, and it's huge. It's sweeping all over the world. And one of the things that they're, they're really missing is they're saying that what I'm about to do, what I'm about to share with you is discipleship. No, it isn't. It's the curriculum that works best, in my opinion, in relationships so that discipleship can happen. So I want to I share with you. Let me tell you what orality is. Orality is taking stories from the Bible and telling them in a small group, and then asking questions. All right? And so let me just give you a picture of what orality is. Let's say that I'm going to tell the story 
of Josiah. What, I'm going to tell you the story of Josiah. I want you to imagine that you've showed up on a Wednesday night for home group. And people are talking and hanging out. And there's some cookies and stuff there and some coffee. And the leader goes, hey, everybody, let's go sit down. It's about 7.15. Everybody goes and sits down. They get in a circle. They say, let's, uh, let's open up in prayer. And, uh, uh, and so uh, Prentice, his name is, is uh, Dave. Dave, would you pray for us tonight? Yeah, you bet. Let's pray. All right. He prays. Now, I say, now, tonight, let me give you some context of the story I'm about to tell you. And uh, let's say that I tell the story of the prodigal son. You guys all know the story of the prodigal son? Jesus is dealing with people who are really against him hanging out with what they would call um, prostitutes and sinners. They're very upset. By the way, I would have my Bible open to this passage, and I would say, I would set it on my lap, and it's open to the passage, and, and I would say, uh, and so here's what's going on. There are people that are very upset about this, so Jesus tells a story. And I'm about to tell you the story. Now, here's what I want. One of you people in the group, I'm going to ask you to tell the story back to me. I'm not going to tell you who, but I'm going to ask you to tell me the story back. And so, uh, be ready. So, what do you think everybody in the small group's doing right now? Okay. And I also say now, as I as I tell this story, um, you might want to open up your Bible and just kind of follow along and see if I mess up anything, see if I'm missing anything, or if I'm not telling part of the story. I want you to check me on this, but I'm going to tell the story. Now, somebody else is going to have to follow me. I'm not telling you who. And you can't look at your Bible to do it. So then I tell the story. I want you to imagine that I tell the story of the prodigal son. All right? At the end of that time, I say, okay, did I miss anything in this story? Well, yeah, you, you didn't say this about the older brother. Or, yeah, you didn't say this about this over here. So, okay, so let's reconstruct it. So how did it go? Well, it goes like this, and you, they reconstruct it. And, you, and, and yeah, you missed this part here, so you reconstruct the story, right? Then I go, okay, uh, you. And they're like, tell the story. And by the way, when I told the story, I, I purposely left some things out, and I purposely made some mistakes. I wanted them to check me, and I wanted them to call me on it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, then this person over here goes, okay, uh, 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 this is what it looks like. And they start telling the story. And they're really nervous about it, you know, and they're telling the story. And, it, and, it, 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 and then at the end of that, I go, now, what, what did they miss? Well, they forgot this, this, and this. But I always go, hey, good job. You jacked that up almost as many times as I did. All right? Now, how many times have they put together the story? Put it together twice. How many times did we tell the story or parts of the story? Four times. Right? Now I ask a question. In that story, which one of the people do you most feel like you are like? Are you most like the father? Or are you most like 
the oldest son or are you most like the youngest son? And why? Now, in the group, we just go around. Well, I think I'm most like the, the oldest because... Uh, the oldest brother, because I, I, my brother, when I was growing up, he went out there and he screwed up his life, he screwed up my life, he screwed up everybody's life, and I'm just angry about him doing that, and I think it's his own fault, and I just, I think I'm most like that person. Well, I think I'm most like the father, the next person says, because uh, I got this person, this friend in my life, that uh, is coming back to the Lord, and I just, I just love him. And, you know, the people around me are kind of mad at me because I'm willing to take him back even though he's hurt me 10 million times. But I think I'm just most like, my fa- like the father. Well, I think I'm the prodigal because I, I, um, I ran away from God for a long time. I, I ran away from, and I just got out there and I completely messed up my life. And so when I came back, it's like, you know, God was right there. And I went to church and, I, and this person did this for me and it was like they received me right back in. I'm most like that, that person right there. So each of these people are going around and sharing which one of those ones they're like. You understand what I'm saying? Now I ask the question, okay, okay. What do you learn about God in this story? Well, he's a, he's a loving God. I mean, I really like that he didn't like lecture. He put a ring on the finger and he put uh, you know, a coat on the sun I just really like that. And it's like, well, and somebody else says, you know, I don't really understand what that coat and that ring have to do with anything. Hmm. Is there anybody that does know that? Well, share a little bit. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that, that coat and that ring, that ring signifies son. It means you're my son again. The son had said, I, I'm not worthy to be your son. I, I'm just a slave. Just let me be a slave. Nope, you're not going to be a slave. You're going to be my son. That's what he was saying. That's good. What, what do you learn about God from that? What do, you, what do you learn about yourself in this story? Well, I learned that I'm just like that oldest son. And when I come to church and people are smoking out there and I'm like, or they jack up their life, I'm like, it's their own fault. And, and that's me. And I, and I totally take for granted. And you know, here, here's, here's what's going on. All right, so what are we going to do with this? What are you going to do? What, what, give me one thing you're going to do as a result of this story. Well, I'm going to, um, I, when people come to know the Lord, I'm going to be a lot more excited about it because God was excited about it. He ran to his son. He was just so happy that his son, and I don't think I, when people are getting saved at church and they're saying, you know, we had 18 baptisms this week or 27, and I don't, I don't clap my hands for that. It's like, it's no big deal because, you know, I guess I see it all the time, but to God, every one of those children was the one who came home. Or... I'm just reminded that he, he loved me. And, and so what's happening in the group right now? They're connecting with the story. They're learning the story. Now, here's some, some reasons why I'm, I'm all for orality or storytelling like this. First, did you know that in America, I don't know what it is in Canada... But about 85% of kids who graduate from college will never read a full book again in their life. Did you know that? That was the statistic in America? Did you know that the national reading level for Americans is fifth grade? That's the average reading level. See, here's where orality came from. A guy by the name of Avery Willis and several others 
uh, he was a Southern Baptist, head of the Southern Baptist Mission Board, had a huge, here's what would happen. They'd go into, um, he worked with Wycliffe and the Bible translators, and they'd go in, and the problem is most of these people didn't, couldn't read if you gave them a Bible. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to teach them to read and then give them a Bible, or can you start telling them Bible stories? Well, they found that these oral cultures, they don't read. They don't like reading. They don't need to read. Well, how are you going to get them the gospel? Well, they started storytelling or orality. And they created what's called biblical arcs, story sets that dealt with their issues in their culture. In other words, if they dealt with idol worship, they would tell Bible stories about idol worship that made the point that there's one God and you're to worship him only. Do you understand? They would take stories of the Bible and create Bible sets that people would learn through memorization. And the way they taught them was by telling the story, just like we just did. And then somebody would tell the story back, and they'd actually memorize the stories. They started, because these people didn't read, uh, most of the YWAM and, and the Campus Crusade and most of the major missionary groups in the world started memorizing stories so that they could teach those Bible stories to people who didn't read. And the gospel spread all over the place. Now, if you go to AveryWillis.com, they did a ton of research on Americans and North Americans on the fact that America is no longer primarily a oral, or excuse me, a literate culture. It is not the primary way in which Americans take in information. What do you think the primary way is that Americans take in information? Visually. Secondly, they listen. Thirdly, they read. So what they're trying to do is go, all right, why aren't people reading their Bibles? Why aren't, uh, why aren't um, these people being discipled? How do we get the word in their hands? And so they started what was called an orality movement in the United States. And we were one of the first churches that did it. We actually are the, second, the first church that actually went to or, orality or storytelling in, in our small groups. And uh, that's a whole other story how we led change in that way. We didn't just do it all at once. We had to actually lead change in that, in that way. But let me give you some, some understanding of the Bible. We actually started, uh, by the way, we started this in Africa as well, in Ethiopia, storytelling. And it has swept through Africa. I mean, the, the sub-Saharan Africans, they actually, the reason this, the, the African church is such a disaster is because they took the American model of church that doesn't even work here and tried to implement it there. And it just created a disaster. Well, when we started making disciples in relationship and storytelling, it, it just is swept. So now we're training churches and planning churches all over Ethiopia, which is the most important country in Africa. Because it is the only country in Africa still, right now to this day, that still has a majority of Christians rather than Muslims. They're 51% to 49%. The Muslim countries have targeted Africa, targeted Ethiopia. They're putting a mosque every five kilometers. So now we're working with the Ethiopians to stop them. Not by putting churches every five, buildings every five 
kilometers, but by helping them disciple their people. Their people sing songs that when we went over there, they're like, we're losing all our kids. None of our people, when the Muslims come through, none of our people stand up for their faith. They all just add Islam to their, to their thing. They're not discipled. They kill each other. That's because you started preaching and singing your songs, but doing no relationship and no discipleship outside of a preaching sermon too. And so they went, and they, they made changes, and it's just changing Ethiopia. But here's the deal. Here's what's happening with people. They're actually memorizing scripture. They're actually learning the Bible stories. And here's how it helps. We went, um, uh, many of our people don't know what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says. How many of you know what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says? 18 and 19. You've been reconciled to God through Christ. Therefore, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. You, you folks are in here. What happens if I get if somebody asks me a question, and and I'm like, well, you know, where is that scripturally? Our people don't know the, the the Bible reference. They don't know the Bible story. So when they don't feel equipped to share their faith, they don't feel like they know enough to share their faith. They don't learn best through literate means, but they do tell stories. How many of you in here tell stories? So when they go to the hospital. And somebody says, you know what? I just don't know if God could forgive me after everything that I've done. Hmm. It's funny you should say that. Let me tell you a story. There was a man once who had two sons. Do you see what just happened? Do they know the story? Did they get the story? See, our people are learning the Bible in context. How many of your people know which came first? Samson or David? See, when you build a biblical ark, you, you line it up in, in a sequence so that your people are actually learning the Bible in order. And they're memorizing the scripture. Although it's not word for word, it's concept for concept. Secondly, it makes recruiting for a leader easier. What's the number one thing we hear when we ask people to be leaders in small groups. What do you think they tell us? I don't know enough. Why? Because the only person they've ever seen lead in a church context is the pastor on the stage who knows where 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 is. Who knows the Greek and the Hebrew. So I don't know enough like him. So I can possibly never be a leader. So that what we say is, can you tell a story and ask questions? Well, yeah, yeah, I could tell a story and ask questions. You can be a leader. It's tripled the number of people that are stepping into ministry for the first time. By the way, when they actually start to lead groups, what starts to happen to their Bible understanding? Let me give you just one little brief story before I move on. Darren Owens. Did anybody meet Darren Owens when they came down to immersion? He's just, boom, I mean, he's just this stocky weightlifter. Did you remember seeing him? Um, he was a cement worker. He started coming to my small group. I invited him to come to my small group, and he started bringing his live-in girlfriend. And he came for a little while, and he accepted the Lord. 
And he's a major player in weightlifting in our area. He's just a, he's a, just massive. And uh, so he, he, um, he came and he accepted the Lord. So about three weeks after he came and accepted the Lord, I went to his house. And I said, uh, Darren, I've got to talk to you about something. And, and he and Melina were there. And I, he said, well, what's going on? And I said, well, Darren, I know God saved you for a purpose. He wants to do something special in your life. Okay, I, I agree with that too. I go, but before he can use you in your life, I think there's something you need to deal with. And he said, what's that? I said, you and Melina are living together. Do you know what the Bible says about sex outside of marriage? Well, yeah. I love you, man. I don't want this to get in the way of your walk with God. And I don't want this to get in the way with uh, what God has planned for you. He saved you for a purpose. All right. So he moved out. They got married. Then he moved back in <laughs> in the next couple months. About a month after that, I went to Darren and I said, Darren, uh, this church has grown really fast. I know, it's crazy. I said, I know, I, I need you to be a small group leader. I was just living with my girlfriend three months ago. I said, I know. Why me? Well, because, uh, Darren... I don't know a lot of people that would get saved and then do exactly what the Bible said, even when it cost them money and it was hard, and you did. I know you don't know enough, so here's what will happen. If I, I want you to start meeting with me at 7 o'clock on Wednesday morning. I'll go to my small group that night. You go to yours, then we'll debrief during the week on what happened. And when you have questions, you call me on the phone. You ask me, and if they, you don't know the answer, you say, I don't know, but I'll know by next week. And when you mess up, or you think you're messing up, ask me about it. And I'll say, yep, you're messing up. Then you go back to your group and say, I'm sorry, I messed up from last week. Can you do that? Oh, he goes, okay, I could do that. So about uh, three weeks into it, he calls me on the phone. Uh, and he says, hey, I got asked a question last night. And I don't know the answer. And I need to know the answer. I said, well, Darren, I got a funeral and I'm going to be out of town. So I can't meet with you before then. But if you'll come by the office, I got a book for you to read on the subject. How many of you pastors have given away about three billion books they never actually read? And they'd never bring it back. How many of you guys have that happen? All right, well, so I give it to him. Uh, it was a Thursday. I come back on Sunday, and uh, he walks up to me and he gives me the book. And I go, well, you didn't read it? He goes, no, I stayed up all night for two nights to read it. I go, why'd you do that? He goes, because i got to have an answer by this Wednesday night. <laughs> right? So he had an answer. We debriefed what that answer was going to be, and he went to the group. And it wasn't long after that I asked him to be a coach because he branched his group three times. And then I asked him to come on staff. And so now he's on staff. He's been on staff for the last four and a half, five years, he and his wife. He will eventually probably plant a church. He's, he's developed to the point where he has some real, real strengths. And... Um, how did he come to the place where he knows enough of the word? He took a Bible, uh, Boise Bible College did a Bible knowledge exam on him to find out what he knew about the Bible, even though he's never been to Bible college. You'll never guess what kind of grades he got on that, on that Bible answer, uh, Bible knowledge quiz. He actually outscored other graduates. How did that, how is that possible? He's a cement worker. How is that possible? 
It's possible because he was in the ministry doing ministry and he learned the word. Why? Because he had to have an answer by next week. He wasn't a 22-year-old kid checking out the, the, the good-looking girl over there. This is a young man who was older. He's probably 35 right now who was already had his, his wife, wanted to know the word. It was being applied every day. He had to know and he did know and he, he did brilliantly. And he has done brilliantly. Do you understand what I'm saying? You see, as they start to serve in ministry, the, the, the need to know the word grows. The game's rigged. God knows as you step into that, the Holy Spirit moves in, starts working, the word comes alive to you because it's not just a theory about something you might need to know someday. You've got to know it right now and you're using it right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? It makes... Recruiting for group leaders easier because you're, you're, they don't have to know Greek and they don't have to be a teacher. They're facilitating. They're asking good questions. And they're, they're using the word of God as their guide. It helps people learn easier. Our, people have, uh, our people's Bible literacy has gone through the ceiling. It helps people uh, be better armed for service as they deal with people in the world. It helps people better disciple their kids. You want to know the number one reason why people don't disciple their kids? It's because they don't know the Bible. What am I going to do? I'm going to bring them to Sunday school. Let them do it. See, by us having everybody in our small group learn the Bible story, then here's what we say to them. We want you to go tell your kids that Bible story this week. What you just saw us do, we want you to do. You know what half of our people do? This is a great story. And I've got tons of these. But one of the guys who works as a plumber has a partner, a journeyman. or a, a, Not a journeyman, but a, an apprentice. And so he, and by the way, I say next week, guess who gets to tell the story? And whoever looks down, they get to do it. Uh, but So I tell the story. So now you get to tell the story next week. You got it? Yeah, and they'll read the story all week long. I mean, they'll, they'll study it. Well, then they go, and this guy says to his uh, apprentice, he says, uh, I got to tell this story this next week. Uh, can I tell it to you right now? Can I practice on you? The guy's like, yeah, go ahead. He's not a Christian, you know. He tells the story to him all week long. The guy on the night he was supposed to tell the story says, can I come with you? I'll be your support. <laughs> the guy comes to home group and he gets saved. Another great story is this guy that he's been praying for his kid for years. His kid hit high school and just went way out there, and he's been in trouble, and he's back at home because uh, he has nowhere else to go. And so this guy, David, he's, um, he's, his, his job to tell the story. So he, tells, he, 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 he says to his son, can I tell you this story? I just, I'm just nervous. i got to get ready. And this kid's not a Christian, and he's tried to talk to his son about God a bunch of times. It ain't going to happen. So he, he says, can I tell you this story? So he tells, he got the kid says, so, yeah, you know, and tell me the story. So every night he tells him the story, and the guy's kid's got the Bible. Ah, you, know, you missed this, you missed this. All right, let me tell it again. He tells it again. Well, the kid says, Dad, can I come with you to home group? I want to see how you do. Well, 10 minutes before the home group starts, he gets a phone call. It's a business phone call he has to take. So he says to everybody, you know, I'll be in, start the prayer time, I'll be in to tell the story in a minute. Well, the phone call takes longer than he thinks. He comes in, as he walks in, the kid starts telling the story for his dad. And the people in the group 
are sitting there watching this. And he comes in and his mouth is dropped. And this kid is telling the story that his dad had been telling him all week long to the group. And through this experience, the kid comes to know the Lord. You see, when these people start sharing their story and asking questions, there's several things that happen. First, you remember how I've been talking about when I'm doing the teaching, I don't know what you're hearing? When I tell the story and ask you which of those people you're like and what you see out of the story, you're opening up. Do you remember how we were talking about the phrase from the stage? Do you remember that? You can't tell where they're at until they open their mouth. When you're doing all the talking, how can you tell where they're at? But when they're talking and sharing what they're getting out of it, now I'm getting to hear where they're at. Let me tell you another great story. We had a guy named Steve. His wife had prayed for him for years to come to the Lord. He's a Navy SEAL. He's a decorated hero. Uh, Now he trains Navy SEALs before they go out. He lives in uh, South Carolina now. His son became my son's best friend, and they played football together. And one day, I, I, I meet Steve, and uh, I, so I go, hey, Steve, you ought to come to church sometime. Oh, maybe I'll go sometime, but my wife bugs me about it all the time. I'm not coming. Well, months go by, and we're real close to the kid, and you know he's praying for his dad because his kids come to know the Lord. And uh, his wife has actually been coming off and on to church, but he'll never come. Well, one day he comes. And that day he comes up to me afterwards. He says, all right, I get it. I go, well, why don't you come to my small group? So he comes to my small group. This guy is a leader of men. You look at this guy and you automatically, I mean, he's a hero, but he's not like a cocky, he's just a regular guy, but he's a hero. And you just, you just automatically love him, you know. So he comes to small group and he eventually accepts the Lord. Well, in the Bible story one night, we're doing the story on uh, dropping the nets, coming and following me. Jesus told that story. And so we go around and we're like, well, what do you get from the story? And what what do you see from the story? And here's what Steve says in the group. He says, uh, you know what? I need to do more for the Lord. I need to do more for the Lord. I've been coming to small group. I go to church, but I need to do more for the Lord. And I was like, hmm, you know, I'm thinking to myself, men's minister, ding, 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 you know, this guy's got some potential. He's a leader. And I, I, so I start to move on to the next person, and my wife goes, wait a minute, honey, to me. Uh, and she goes, Steve, can I ask you a question? And, she, and he went, well, yeah. He goes, she goes, do more for what? Why do you need to do more? And she's got that look. I've seen that look on her face a thousand times. Like she knows something I don't know. And she goes, uh, "What? why? Why do you need to do more? Well, I, I just need to do more. No, I, I get that, Steve. I hear what you're saying. So now I'm starting to pick up. I'm looking over here. Oh. All right. Steve, that's a good question. Why do you think you need to do more? Well, what do you think it came down to? He needed to do more because he wasn't sure he was saved. He'd been a Christian for a little while and he had fallen into a work salvation. I'm not doing enough to be saved. Now, what would have happened had I gone, oh, he wants to do more, throw him into men's ministry. Tell me what kind of a leader he would have been. What, what would have been his emphasis? How would, what would have happened with a guy who's teaching people and people are following him because he's a level 10 leader in the military? 
What would it have been like to have a guy who isn't sure of his own salvation leading and teaching men? Through that conversation, we got to talk about the fact that you don't do things to be saved. You do things because you're saved. And we talked about the motivation of all that. Now, how did I discover that? How did my, actually, how did my wife discover that? There was a story that he was listening to that he understood and there were questions asked and rather than me doing all the talking, it was a facilitated discussion where people are opening up and sharing about their stuff. Not only are they learning the story, out of it we learn some theology as well. I got to go, okay, now I know what I need to work on in this guy's life. Remember how we were talking about you need to know where they're at so that you know how to help them? How do you know where they're at if you don't spend time with them and you don't listen to them? All you do is preach at them or teach at them. How do you know? It helps people disciple their kids. It helps leaders where their peop- know where their people are at. It makes group interesting. I've done small groups where I'm like, good grief, how much longer until this is over? With this group, it's like, oh my goodness, it's 9 o'clock, we've got to go pick up our kids. People can't wait to come because they're involved. They're growing. They're learning how to disciple their own kids. I can tell a story to my own kid. I can ask questions. I can do that. It builds relationships because people are telling their story to one another. Instead of, let's just uh, put up the, the volleyball and bounce it around of this philosophical idea, people are telling their stories how they really feel about things. People are getting to know each other, but the word of God is still central to what's happening. It's not a catharsis counseling group. The word of God is central. They're learning something from the word and now they're getting to know each other. So now, why do we we, we story tell? Well, because it is the best by the, the Bible's the best curriculum there is. They're learning the Bible, but they're also getting to know each other. They're also starting where they're at and learning how to facilitate. When we think of teaching, when I say the word, today, yesterday, I taught my son how to throw, uh, how to play catch. Did I teach him? Yes. How did I teach him? Well, I took a diagram, I drew a guy with a ball, and I, is that what I did? Some of us go, I have the gift of teaching. As soon as I say that, you go, well, teaching must mean that I stand up in front of people and lecture. No. Teaching can happen in a variety of different ways. Sometimes it's modeling. Sometimes it's telling a story. Sometimes it's asking a question. Real teaching, the best kind of teaching, is not done by lecture. Or preaching in the, in the Christian world. Not to say it never has a place. It does. Good teachers and good preaching is very beneficial. But real discipleship happens in relationship. We don't want to have a curriculum where one guy is talking and everyone else is sitting there. Because there is, there's no interaction. There's no real application. There's no, uh, you know, where, how are you doing with that? We, we ought to get down to not just, do you, know, do you understand this biblical concept? 
What struggles do you have with that? Where are you at with that? How would you apply that principle? Not Now you understand the Trinity. How does that apply to your life? How is it going to change your life? What can I hold you accountable to? What can you hold me accountable to? And people start talking to each other and knowing one another, and still the Bible is central. So, we, uh, in our, in our uh, home groups, do a lot of orality. Story sets every year. The first story set was uh, the, the Bible, survey of the Bible. Next story set was the Gospels. Third story set, third year, was the book of Acts. Our people know the story of the book of Acts. Okay? They learn the story of the book of Acts. This year, it's, it's biblical stories around discipling your kids. You, you know, you need to disciple your kids. Go disciple your kids. How? No one ever discipled me. That's where they're coming from. But we're doing something that they can actually learn to do and take home. The questions will be different based on their age. Right? All right. Bobby, where are you at over here? There you are. Let's uh, take time for uh, some questions. Yeah, the, Let yeah. me uh, repeat the question. Okay. Uh, so Derek's asking, um, tell us a little bit about how you branched the group in terms of what the leader did. There's not one size fits all sort of thing. It's, it's based on the size of the group. It's based on the leadership in the group. Just because you could branch it doesn't mean you always necessarily need to or have to or even should. Um, let, in some of our groups, the apprentice will take Three families they're especially close to go over. The leader will stay and and with the two of the other group, couples, and then we'll add three and we'll add two. Sometimes the, the leader will go, you know what? This group, my apprentice is good. It's a good size group. I'm actually going to step out and let my apprentice run it. And I'll go start another group over here with the new, with the new apprentice and, and everything else. Do you understand? Sometimes uh, it's... Um, you know, the group's just gotten started and we've grown so much that we just put four more families in it. It's too big and they haven't even really gelled yet. So um, your apprentice may not be ready yet, but that guy over there has got a great apprentice who's, who's ready. So we might need to take that apprentice because they don't know anybody anyway. We'll just split it, bring them over here, to run two groups out of that group. You just need to know the leaders. If you have a relationship with them and you're in dialogue with them and you know where they're at, the, the key to all of this is relationship. Based on, I'm going to listen to you. What do you think we should do? If I'm coaching you, I'm going to go, before I tell you anything, where, what do you think the answer to that problem is? Right? If I'm going to branch a group, and I, and I, I know my apprentice has got to be a part of it, what do you think we should do? Here, let's decide on this together. Well, I would feel comfortable if we did this, this, and this. Or I'm really nervous and scared about it. Can you step out in faith if I meet with you on Wednesday mornings at 7 o'clock? Well, yeah. I, I don't know. Well, okay, then we're not, gonna, we're not ready to do it yet. I'll just, we'll just do this a different way. Do you understand what I'm saying? You just know your people. The leadership is most important. 
In other words, that apprentice is... They're all important to me, but that apprentice and, and my future leader there is more important than the regular people who go to the group. There's a rule of thumb just to tag on with what Jim says. Again, I didn't know this before, but it's something that I've learned in the last couple of years, is that leader readiness is the key factor because the leader is going to be the person to disciple and take care of everybody. So the apprentice being ready is always the biggest, most important factor. They don't always groups. think they're ready when they, and they might be. Do you understand what I'm saying? Darren was ready because he had a lot of skill sets that he really loved the Lord and he was pouring over the word. He was so on fire for the word. So I'm like, you know what? You can do this. Then there's other times they're just not, they're just not ready. And, uh, and there have been times where I thought they were ready and they weren't. But the key thing is you have a safety net. Yeah. You've got so the, you're, you're coach. coaching them every week. And so you know what's going on. Darren. Is there any other curriculum? We've, so the we've question done, is, is there any other curriculum? We've done, at one point we did sermons. We wrote curriculum based on the sermons. But then what ended up happening is they did a lot of mimicking of what I was saying rather than what they actually thought. So now I really don't know what they're thinking. They just know what they heard me say. What did they really think? And, and remember, discipleship is knowing what they really think so that I know what they really need. Uh, but I'm, you know, sermons can work. Uh, we've used Navigator stuff. We've used Willow Creek uh, stuff, Hard Questions series. We've written our own curriculum a lot of the time. But uh, even at that, a lot of the lessons were written so that they had to be teacher-led rather than facilitated. We want them to be facilitation groups. And that takes skill set. We, we train all of our leaders in facilitation. How do I facilitate? Make my point biblically, and, but facilitate rather than me do all the talking. Make sense to you? Somebody had a question we, over there. Yeah, we've got a question over here, Dale. It sounds like the uh, story sets are the curriculum. Are they developed by staff and distributed? Yeah. And do, the, do all this fo- uh, the small groups follow the same curriculum yep. at the same time? Mm-hmm. Now, d- remember, we have home groups, which is mixed groups, but then we also have women's groups, men's groups, all those kinds of groups. They would follow some different curriculum. Like there are times when we did story sets for men, great men of the Bible, and we did story sets based on that. We've done the same for women, great women of the Bible, story sets, that, that kind of thing. But, um, but the home groups, the mixed groups, we control the curriculum. Now, we also tell, teach people that, hey, you got a curriculum, somebody comes in and they're really upset about something, put your curriculum down and let's minister. You see what I'm saying? But you don't want to do that every week or then it becomes who's upset this week and we're not going to the Word. So there's some, uh, there's some real... Uh, there's a great book out on small groups that I, we had all of our people read called the Walking the, the Home Group Tightrope by Donahue, Donahoe by uh, Will Creek, Walking the Small Groups Tightrope, yeah. talking about um, the difference bet- between letting them become counseling groups and, the, and Bible studies and the balance between the two. Jim, um, if you can comment, and we'll come to uh, Michael in just a bit, about uh, men's ministry. Um, what are some keys to... Having discipleship in a men's ministry. 
Well, you want to have men's men be in front because men follow men. And you want to have an environment where men want to be a part of what's going on. Men want to be uh, involved. Uh, We have so many men involved, it's just ridiculous. But it's because they're actually, they're, their learning styles are being addressed. There's, they're, they're, we're doing things that they appreciate doing. They're not just being asked to sit down and shut up. Uh, they're being modeled for. Uh, it's, just, we have a, it's just crazy what happens with that group. This battle cry thing, they're, getting, they're coming to church at 5 a.m. and starting men's small groups because of how early. I'm like, dude, don't ask me to come to that. Uh, unless there's something to kill at that early in the morning. Uh, to hunt, but but I'll, I have my group meets at seven, so um, they've already been over for an hour by the time I I get get going. But it's it's just the culture of our church. Men get involved. Men are are a major part of what we do. One of the things I wanted to uh, bring up, um, I know uh, uh, some of the things Jim has said about male leadership, which. Um, both Jim and I are very big believers that the Bible teaches male leadership. Now it's servant leadership, but it's very much male leadership. And we believe it's very important for the health of the church in the long run to uphold male leadership because of biblical grounds. Um, and I'd be happy to correspond with anybody who'd like help with that who's, who's maybe wavering on that. But I will tell you the practical outworking of it is that churches that emphasize male leadership in a healthy way like Jim's talking about, have a very high percentage of men involved in the church. And they get most of their family. It's like 91%. So 90, 91% of men who get saved, their family comes to know the Lord. It's 30% when the wife gets saved. It's 18% when the kid gets saved. So um, one of the things that I have found over the years in observing things is the average church uh, is 65% women. 35% men. That's a national average, by the way. Churches that do a good job with teaching and upholding male leadership tend to be 50-50. You guys are what? About 55, 58, somewhere there. Men to women. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some of you who may not have had a lot of experience with this, I just want to say this. I have found, because we, we, we've trained a lot of uh, non-Christian guys in biblical male leadership. And you know who likes it the most? the wives of our guys because they get more involved in their families. They love their wives. They get more engaged with the kids because we're showing them what Jesus said about leadership. So I would just like to, um, you know, throw those things in there as well. Kurt, you were going to say something? Yeah, I was going to briefly say that uh, that's sort of our theological stance in our church as well. We have a male leadership, female elders, and uh, it's just the resistance to that comes not from Yeah, so I think the the key is, uh, you know, I've heard Jim say it before, and I've seen it as well, that uh, a godly man who's a, who's who's really, you know, a man, uh, other men want to want to follow that. It creates a masculine uh, role model that's winsome, and it resonates in the heart. And it's men. not a dictatorship. Godly leadership. Yes, you're a godly leader, but that's a responsibility, not a privilege. Your job is to die for your family. Lay down your life for your wife. So when I say the job of the man is to lead the church, it is. But what kind of leadership? Jesus 
gave up his life for his sheep. He laid down his life. He washed their feet. All right? So you're taking as a leader the initiative in your home to make sure that your family comes to know the Lord rather than the wife going, how come you never pray with your kids? How come I have to do all the Bible storytelling? You know, you're in there watching football and, you know, and I'm having to do all this stuff. No, I'm taking the initiative. When I take the initiative, though, I don't take the initiative to exclude my wife. I take the initiative to include my wife. In other words, honey, tonight, would you read that passage for us and would you pray for us tonight? It's not the meaning that she doesn't speak or talk or, but no, no, no. But I initiate that we do it together and I'm going to be responsible for being the covering over my home. It's the same in the church. Women participate in our church in every possible way. We don't make an all-church decision without women. But the males take the initiative to lead. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you or not. Uh, But I'm happy to make a theological argument, and I feel like I can do a very good job with that. So come on, baby. But (laughs) that, that wasn't my point. I think that the scriptural teaching backs up the way we're wired as men and women. And that's why you see these kinds of things happening in healthy church contexts when male leadership is upheld that way. Men are engaged. Women love it. I can just tell you the the women that I know whose husbands have really decided to go hard after Jesus and male leadership and their wives love it. You know, I want to say say this real quick too, guys. why do we fight against what is clearly says in Scripture? Why do we come up with new rules of interpretation to take away the things that our culture doesn't want to hear? Why do we care what our culture wants to hear? Why don't we care what Jesus wants to say? Why don't we listen to him? Jesus said, uh, you know, many people believed him, but they would not follow him for they wanted the praises of men more than they wanted the praises of God. God's the one who blesses the church. As we change our theology to make them happy... Whoever happy, it doesn't grow the church. It actually takes away the blessing of the church, which is why uh, Morrow wrote the book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, and they show that in churches where they allow women to be elders and senior pastors over men and women, there is such a sharp decline that whole denominations are shutting down now. Why? Without God's blessing, unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain. Giving the culture what they want is not giving them what they need. Who knows what they need? The great designer of their souls. Now, I agree. There have been many men who have used the Bible to beat up women. Submit! My wife is so tough. She's like, fine, then love me like Christ loves the church. If I ever say that to her. You know, we want to put women in their place. Well, women's place are to be... They're, women, they're God's daughters. They're supposed to be involved. They're supposed to be loved, cherished, and involved. But males are responsible for the leadership of the home and the church. Michael. Yeah, I wanted to back up a little bit and talk, uh, ask a question about orality. Uh, the method, I really like the discussion, the facilitation. And it sounds like it works really well with Bible stories, with the narratives, with the Gospels, with Acts, mm-hmm. with Judges, with uh, Genesis. I mean, the places that there's stories. What about when you get into... Uh, poetic literature like the Psalms, 
Uh, you get into wisdom literature like Proverbs. You get into Paul's letters. How does, how does that fit? Because it strikes me that uh, we're, we're going to miss something if we're not engaged in those parts of the Bible as well. Yeah, I would say a couple of things. First, it, it, it's harder with things like uh, Paul's letters, but not impossible. Like, for instance, tell me the context to Philippians. Well, no, in Philippians, where is he at? He's in jail, right? And uh, so he's in jail. And you're telling the context of him being in jail and he's saying, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. He starts out in 1 Corinthians by talking about how what, what you know, I thought was going to be a bad deal has really turned out for the progress of the gospel. And I'm in chains for Christ. In other words, from Paul's perspective, it's not that, man, I'm chained to these soldiers. It's like they're chained to me. Right? They're chained to me. Oh, are they going to get an earful? He goes, the whole palace guard has come to hear about it. Oh, yeah, because they rotate through. Oh, not him again. Right? I mean, when you start understanding the context of the story, you can put this into a story format. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or you can read the verses and say, now you see him in jail. Do you see him in jail? And here's what he's saying. Shut your eyes. Look at him in jail. He's between two guards. Here's what that jail looks like. It's not like the American jail where there's three squares a day and it's pretty clean. And you, you, know, you see him on his bunk. No. He's in a, there's a hole. And that's where they go to the bathroom. And they haven't cleaned it out since the last dude that was in there. And he's chained. You know, and you start telling this story. Right? It's not impossible to do. But now I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, how many of you have done small group curriculum? In a small group, do you do every story, every every kind of small group, uh, every kind of verse in scripture in small group? No. Some of it you can preach through. Some of it you read through. Right. Some of it is a Bible study that you have them doing on their own. You don't. It's not like you know the whole uh, Calvary Chapel thing where we got to go verse by verse from the end of the Bible to the beginning, of, uh, you know, to the beginning to the end, and we've got to do every verse in the Bible in the small group, right? They can be doing devotions about, with uh, going through Paul's or excuse me, uh, David's writings and Psalms. In fact, I would rather not in mixed company do the Song of Solomon. Is there anybody else giving an amen on that one? So not every passage of scripture are you going to want to do that in small group, but whatever curriculum you use, you don't take on every subject in a mixed group, and you don't go through every... Like, for instance, I really wouldn't use for curriculum the lineage stuff in Leviticus ever for any reason in a small group. Okay? So you're using the parts of the scripture that you really want them to get, you want them to know the stories of Jesus. You want them to know the stories in Genesis. You want them, we, I did storing first. And people were like, well, it's not very theological if you just use storing. I remember we did Walking Through the Bible. My first lesson, uh, our first story was on creation. And Genesis 1.27, then God said, let us, bring, uh, let us make man in our own image. And I told the story. And they were like, 
What does us mean in our own image? I, I thought there was one God. Funny you should ask that. What do you think that means? Well, are they talking about the Trinity? Clear back in Genesis chapter 1, the Trinity, you think? You see, what it gets very theological very fast. And the more they, ha- they talk and the more they do this stuff, the better they get at it. When they're brand new, it's very simple. I can tell a story and ask questions. But as they learn the Bible and they grow in their understanding of the Word, they're able to handle that stuff more and more and more. Just a few more questions. What, what do you do with kids in the mixed groups? Yeah, we make the group decide. They have all different ways. I mean, here's the deal. They would have to decide if they were going out on a date, right? Some of our groups hire a, Bible, Bible, uh, a babysitter from the youth group, and they all pitch in a dollar, and there's six families, so they got six bucks for an hour. Sometimes they go, okay, there's 14 adults in here. Each of us are going to take a week. So once every 14 weeks, I'm in there. Sometimes they have older kids. Sometimes, the, in the, remember, they're in neighborhoods. So let's leave the kids over there, and we'll have the small group over here, you know, and we'll have our older kids watch them over there. But we make each group decide what they're going to do with their kids. That's one of the discussions the groups have at the beginning. My, one of my groups had 17 kids, all under the age of... 12 or 13, and oh my goodness, was that fun. But, I mean, it was good. Kurt. Yeah, sorry for another question, but I assume You're killing me, man. Yeah, you protected the all of the church through the... Cool. Uh, you, uh, you know, um, you're concerned about theology in your church, and you. Uh, it sounds to me, um, I might answer my own question, that you protect the theology through taking your leaders through 301, where you revisit your main beliefs. That's not the only way. What other way do you think we protect? I thought I was asking the question. (laughs) (laughs) You tell me. (laughs) What do the coaches do? They're always asking, hey, do you have any questions about your small group this week? Do you got the curriculum? There's a, there's a leader's guide. You, did you read through that? What do you got? Any questions in there? So it's happening all the time. It's not a program mentality or thought. The relationship is key because that's an ongoing conversation that may happen three times in a week. It may happen one time in a week, but they're always checking. How are you doing? What do you need? How's your small group going? Hey, did you get your role, your, your, uh, role in there? You know, Any questions about the small group curriculum? Anything you need? That's what those coaches do. Did that answer the rest of your question? Yes. John. This goes back to this afternoon when you're talking about leadership and you had a diagram that uh, was a little disturbing for me to look at. Uh, you were having, you're talking about the importance of leadership and identifying leaders and where they were, and you talked about a scale, 1 to 10, and uh, you asked us where we'd put ourselves on that scale. So I have a question about that. Um, is, is, is it possible, like, you can identify someone's maybe a 5, 
is there hope for them to be to get to an eight, or are they just always going to be a five? Well, what's important about that scale is they can become an eight team even if they're a five leader. How do they become an eight team? Hmm? Bringing others onto the team, recognizing who they are and who God's brought them, and allowing those guys to be a part. I got guys on my team that are way smarter than me. And they've taken my IQ higher because they're there. And they're reminding me of things that I most often forget. Y'all remember this. Remember we've learned that. What do you think about that? See, leading as a team, getting outside of your own head is so important if you're going to actually uh, lead a church. Let me just tie that in for some of you who are not part of that conversation <clears throat> this afternoon. Um, Jesus tells the story of the parable of the talents. There's two talent, three talent, five talent people. Um, talents meaning just kind of capability and abilities. Um, typically in a church, um, uh, if somebody's a five talent leadership person, they're going to struggle following a three talent leadership person just because they see better and they, they see all the things that could be done better. What Jim pointed out, and I wanted everybody to be aware of, if you're a three-talent leader, but you really love well, and you ask the five-talent people genuinely for their input, and, and you really listen to them, and you're a team with them, uh, you know, you, you can provide a context where a lot of good things can happen. So I don't know if you want anything to that. No, I think that we're supposed to do it together, that... People are supposed to see what you don't see. That's why we're the body. That's why there's elders, not elder. We each have different skill sets. It's like we each carry part of the recipe for the stew that tastes good. When there's only carrots in there, it's just carrots. But we bring in all the other pieces of it. Now it tastes good. I don't know why pastors... Well, I do. It's pride, fear, Um. They get intimidated, defensive when somebody says, hey, you know, I saw this. Um, and, you know, I think we could do this a little bit better if we did this, this, or this. Why not go, thank God somebody's helping me and see something I don't see and is willing to help me? Why, why can't we say that? Why do we go, well, no, you're supposed to, to worship my, my, the beauty of my masterpiece that I built here. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, we've got to grow up, and, and it's not about us, and we've got to try to get past our insecurities and allow people to speak into our lives. Now, I just had to tell an elder last week. Actually, he jumped in the middle of something, and uh, uh, one of our teams was doing something, and he came in and he immediately said, well, I wouldn't do it this way, and I would do it this way, and that way, and this way. And so this staff member came to me and said, you know, he's probably right about what he said, but man, he has never been there before. He hasn't even asked us what we're doing, and here he comes talking. I said, well, here's what you're going to do. You've got one day to go and talk to that elder and tell him how you feel. And if you don't do that, day two, then we go together. Because we're going to deal with issues as they come up. Well, he went and did it on Sunday uh, afternoon. The, the, the staff member came up to me and said, he did great, and he asked for my forgiveness. I said, all right, is that an elder you can follow? Yep. I don't expect him to be perfect, but I expect him to uh, accept, accept it. Now, let me ask you this, I said to him. 
Was some of what they were saying right? Had you thought through some of what happened well enough? Well, I think we probably missed it on this, this, this. Did you say that? You know, made him resolve it, but he was right. He just was wrong about the way he went about doing it. And you've got to work those things out. But people see things that you don't see, and God sent them there to actually help. Your wife is not your enemy when she sees something that you don't see. God brought her to help complete you and your perspective. And until you value that, there's always going to be a problem in your marriage. I've asked uh, Jason if he'll come up and uh, just say a few words about immersion. You may want to add something out to this, Jim, but I wanted to give a chance to uh, talk a little bit about immersion. I have brochures here for each organization, so I'm going to ask, Darren, would you help pass these out? If you're with one of the uh, uh, churches or organizations, make sure you get one of those, and Jason's going to tell us a little bit about it. Okay, context here is I got tapped five minutes ago. And I have no idea why he asked me to come up here. So uh, I'm at Glen Elm in Regina. There is on staff two ministry staff, myself and a youth minister. We have six elders. And uh, we got wind of the immersion workshops. And uh, back in February, the two ministry staff, along with half of the eldership, went to Immersion 1. Over the last six months now, uh, two more of the elders... And three other individuals have also made their way in. So we're just kind of trickling our way to Immersion 1. Um, if you've been here for these two days, then at least content-wise, you've heard a good coverage of it. But I would be quick to say that the Immersion 1 experience is significantly different than the past two days have have been. This has been fine. Uh, the other, it just looks... Uh, well, lecture's not your thing. You've no. said it yourself. And yet these two days, just by the amount of stuff to cover, that has been the forced format on us. Mm-hmm. When we went down there, I remember estimating probably 10% lecture, and that 10% was just basically the setting of the table. And now go to your groups and get it's at all it. experiential. Pretty much. And, and so it was a very different thing. Um, I found it just very personally rewarding Myself, the youth minister, and three of the elders, I found that to be a very tightening experience just for the five of us even. Uh, I'm hoping that the next one is shared by our whole circle of leadership. I'm not sure if there's anything else I have to offer, Bob. That's what I was hoping you would offer. Thank you. (laughs) Jimmy, we can give you a chance to share any last things, and then I'll lead us in a closing prayer afterwards. Well, I, guys, I, I just want you to know that um, what I really care about, honestly, is not that you even... I mean, I hope that some of these principles will will sneak into maybe the way you do ministry. And if a year from now you don't even remember where you heard it, it's fine with me. I just want to see the church win. I think it's supposed to, and I, and, and I think it can. In any culture, at any time, in any place. There's never been a time in history, in my opinion, where the church of Christ, his church, his body, was more needed than it is right now. I'm so tired of losing our kids. 
and we're soaking in this sinful culture. And somehow we got to say, Jesus, we repent. We've allowed our busyness, our, our perspectives to be shaped by well-intentioned other people, maybe, um, instead of the word. And I just want to encourage you to really examine your own life and, and to put down the pride thing and say, you know, how are we doing? And, and, and I've tried my best, and, and I think Jesus is pleased with my effort, but now, just as I grow, I mean, in my own life, it's like I, he comes up and he says, Jim, you've done great, but now I want you to start working on this, and, and then I start to work on that. You know, I just, I just want to see the church in Canada be all it can be. I, there are people that aren't going to come to Christ no matter what. The Bible tells us that's true. But there are people that would have come to Christ if we'd have been the real Jesus, the real body to them. I pray that for your churches. I pray that in your own lives. I pray that you have the kind of relationships. Uh, if it wouldn't have been for the relationships I have with my staff and my eldership, I would have quit two years ago when my son was dealing with drug addiction. And I had to go to them and say, I can't, I can't carry the burden by myself. And they said, hey, we're here. We're going to do this together. We're okay. And they walked me through the last two years. Not only is relationship key to disciple making, but it's key to finishing the mission. The mission by itself is not enough. The mission with Christ and other believers is enough. You need, you need Jesus to... Uh, Surround you with, with people that will help you and love you and care for you and that you can help and love and care for. Your people in your church need it. And, and that isn't going to happen by creating and spending 90% of your energy on what happens on a Sunday morning. Not saying that Sunday morning isn't important. What I'm saying is, why should 90% of our energy be directed at something that is not making disciples effectively? Thanks. Yeah, thank you.